0: Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will bring it to pass. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. be not dismayed, for I am thy God, I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. They that wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not grow weary, they shall walk and not faint. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's make sure that we are Indeed, in fellowship, and that we are prepared for study of God's word, and we do that for, with a few moments of silent prayer. Now, this is not a ritual. Sometimes people slip into thinking of confession prior to class or at other times as some sort of mechanistic ritual. Yet, this is not a mechanistic ritual. We simply we admit and acknowledge our sins to the Lord. Granted, it's not some kind of an emotional penitential exercise, but neither is it just sort of some rote grocery list recitation of the same old four or five sins that we're used to. We must be cognitively involved and not just sort of going through some rote exercise. Remember, ritual without reality, no matter what that is, even if it's some mental ritual, still lacks reality. So confession is indeed a dialogue between each of us and the Lord in which we are admitting, acknowledging the sins in our lives. We're not trying to promise God that we're not going to do it again. He's omniscient. He knows all the knowable. He knows better. But we are just admitting, acknowledging our sins, and then God tells us that he forgives us of all of our sins, not just the ones we confess, But all the sins, the ones we didn't know were sins, the ones we forgot about, he forgives us, wipes the slate clean, separates our sins as far from us as the East is from the West, which is remarkable because that tells us that sin is not the issue at all in the Christian life. The issue is Jesus Christ, and the issue is learning doctrine and moving forward in the spiritual life. So before we take the time this morning to look at God's Word, let's make sure we're in fellowship Filled with the Holy Spirit and ready to learn doctrine. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your word which is living and powerful. It is the source of all knowledge for us and the base for all knowledge that we might live in this world in a way that honors and glorifies you by coming to your word because it is a light and a lamp. It illuminates every arena of our life, every category of thought, teaches us how, how we should think, how we can interact with the world around us, how we can, what we should do, what we should say teaches us above all about our relationship with you. We are here for one purpose and that is to glorify you in the angelic conflict. And we do that only through assimilating your word into our lives and into our thinking so that our lives and thoughts are transformed that we might live in a way that brings honor and glory to you and that our lives are a testimony to the angels and to those around us for your eternal glory. So now Father as we fellowship together around the teaching of your word. We pray that you would help us to understand these things, that we might have clarity of thought this morning, be able to concentrate on these things, and the Holy Spirit would make it clear to us how these things apply to each of our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Down at verse twelve this week. Galatians chapter four. We will begin by reading the passage we'll cover this morning. The first twenty verses. This is one of those unique transitional sections that we run into in the uh, in the epistles that are not exactly fraught with doctrine or loaded with deep thought, but do have some significant things there for us. And I think a lot of this is emphasized by one of the last phrases that we come to in verse 20. Let's begin reading verse 12. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time, And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out in order that you may seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. That last verse in verse 20 gives us sort of the hermeneutical key to this section. Paul is shifting his tone. If we go back and look by way of review to the first chapter. After his brief introduction, he comes out with his guns blazing, so to speak, in verse 6. I am astounded that you have so quickly deserted him who called you by the grace of God. He says it so quickly, he says it so abruptly, it is virtually a, a verbal slap in the face to these Galatian believers. Now, this is just the opposite of how most people think a pastor ought to respond. Most people have this sense of this somewhat wimpy, sissified pastor who just sort of always puts his arm around everybody and and says all the nonsensical little nice things that people ought to say and never uh, raises his voice, never says anything offensive, never steps on anybody's toes. And yet that is not the portrayal we have in Scripture either by example or by dictate of the role and responsibilities of the teacher of the Word of God. And Paul has to be very harsh with the Galatians because the issues are very harsh. We live in an era today when the last thing in the world people want to do is take a stand for doctrine. I was reminded of this several years ago when I was in Houston. There's a group of, uh, of uh, a dramatic company there called the A.D. Players that has achieved national renown because of what they do. And they are a group of Christian... Uh, They have Christian writers and Christian actors, and they put on a number of really excellent plays in relation to, well, some of them are just regular secular plays that are very good, and many of them are scriptural themes. They've done Abraham and Sarah. They've done a synopsis of John. They've done all sorts of biblically-related themes, as well as taking contemporary situations where they show how a Christian worldview impacts life on a day-to-day basis. And this was one they did a number of years ago that had to do with a historical situation in England, and the main character was a young girl who was what they called a gospeler during the time of the Reformation, and she was a young woman who believed uh, in the gospel, that, that salvation was by faith alone and Christ alone. She had accepted the gospel, and she was part of the Reformation in contrast to the uh, dominant Roman Catholic position in England at that time, and so she would uh, she was taking her stand for the gospel and make and the issue was over the Lord's table whether or not at the mass the bread and the cup actually turned into uh, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and for that people were dying and they were being put on fire on uh, set a fire at the stake, and uh, under the reign of uh, Mary. who became known as Bloody Mary. Over 300 uh, evangelicals were burnt alive at the stake at Smithfield in just a short period of her reign as, as Queen of England. That's why she's known as Bloody Mary. And it hit me how very few people today understand or even care about the fine points of doctrine, like the issues surrounding the Mass or the Lord's Table, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, memorial service, or whatever. They just think that it ought to be okay. Everybody ought to worship however they want to. And yet, we are where we are in Christianity and evangelicalism because people fought and died. And these were matters that they considered worth fighting for and giving their life for. And yet, we look at this today from our somewhat, quote, sophisticated, liberal, democratic viewpoint as just being too harsh and too dogmatic. And yet if one thinks about the underlying issues that are involved, we are talking about the eternal destiny of a person's soul. And we're talking about the quality of that eternal destiny in heaven. So that we, when we come to issues related to the gospel and we come to issues related to the spiritual life, we want to just kind of ease the waters and say, well, you can have your view and, and I can have my view. And today we see this in the the debate that's going on among evangelicals that's known as the lordship salvation controversy, but we also see it in the realm of the spiritual life. What constitutes the spiritual life of the believer? And why is that important? That is important because the spiritual life issues, what we call sanctification, are issues related to answering the question, How does a believer get from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood? What are the means? What are the mechanics? How do you advance in the spiritual life? Now, over the course of years, there have been a number of different solutions to that question, a number of different answers to that question. How do you get from, from, from being a spiritual infant, a spiritual baby, to being a spiritual adult? The first issue, of course, is the one that we covered in the Lordship Controversy and we've dealt with extensively in our study of Galatians, and that is just how do you become a spiritual infant in the first place? How are you born again? What is the doctrine of regeneration? And we've studied over and again that that is simply faith alone in Christ alone. And this is the major theme in the first two chapters of Galatians, and Paul says this in verse 16 of Galatians 2, And we need to translate that correctly, not like it is found in the New American Standard, but it starts off with an adverbial participle of cause. Because you know that a man is not justified by works of law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of law, since by works of law no flesh shall be justified. So there it is very clear that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. And we have seen that faith is defined, and we will cover this in more detail in the second hour, that faith is non-meritorious. All of the merit in faith is in the object of faith. It is in Jesus Christ. It is not in the individual. Faith, everybody can exercise faith. It doesn't matter how, how uh, great your intellect is, what your economic status is, what your education background is. Anybody can exercise faith and indeed, faith is the underlying epistemological method for, ever, for all knowledge. How do you learn anything? You're, you're an infant and you're beginning to assimilate some vocabulary and your mother points to your father and says, Daddy. And so you take that by faith and you begin to call him Daddy. Even learning vocabulary begins with the presupposition of faith. So faith is something that is not limited. Anybody can do it. But the issue is the object of faith, not faith itself. When the the emphasis is on faith, faith in faith, as long as I believe. How many times are you talking to somebody at the workplace or a family member, and they're going through some crisis in life, and they say, well, everything's going to work out. Well, how do you know that? Well, I just believe it will. Well, what are they basically saying? They're saying that I have faith in faith. As long as I maintain an optimistic attitude, as long as I have faith that it's going to work out, it's going to work out, and that's faith and faith, and that's mysticism, and that's the underlying thinking and the power of positive thinking, the power of, of uh, whatever. There's various different people teaching these positive thinking uh, systems today, uh, mental, dynamic, mental attitude dynamic sort of things that just put the emphasis on your attitude as opposed to content, but the issue is always the object of faith, whether it is Jesus Christ and his substitutionary death on the cross, or whether it is the scriptures for the believer in the faith rest drill where where we are mixing faith with the promises of God. Salvation begins with faith alone in Christ alone, but then how do we advance? And this becomes the issue for the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3. In the first five verses, he uh, frames the issue through several rhetorical questions. And the more I get into this section, because if we subdivide what Paul is saying so in this epistle, then what we discover is that chapters three and four, remember the chapters were not added till many years later. This was just written like a letter. Chapters three and four really hang together on one theme where he has gone, he has moved beyond the issue of the gospel in the first two chapters to the spiritual life. The relationship of the gospel and salvation of the spiritual life in chapters three and four. And he frames the question very clearly in verses two and three of chapter three. And the more I study later on in this epistle, the more I come back to the significance of these two questions. He says in verse, chapter three, verse two, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? and that's the reception of the Holy Spirit in terms of the saving, minist- saving seven saving ministries of God the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, specifically the indwelling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, baptism of the Holy Spirit, and filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, baptism of the Holy Spirit places us in union with Christ, positional truth. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is when God the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside the believer, to make our bodies a home for Jesus Christ, a tabernacle for Jesus Christ and the Shekinah glory. Now, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is positional truth. Indwelling of the Holy Spirit is related to the indwelling of Christ and the Shekinah glory in every believer. And those are permanent ministries of the Holy Spirit that cannot be lost at all. The filling of the Holy Spirit can be lost, but it is recovered through 1 John 1.9. The filling of the Holy Spirit is the spiritual dynamic of the christian life the unique life of the christian in the church age and this is this begins to get brought out in verse 3 are you so foolish having begun by means of the holy spirit are you now being brought to per, to completion that is maturity It's not perfect there. It's one of our favorite words that we keep coming back to, which means to be brought to completion or to brought to maturity. Are you now being brought to maturity by means of the flesh? Well, that's a very interesting question. Flesh is the native power of the human being, specifically under the control of the sin nature. Now the implication of this question is that you can look like you have a certain level of spiritual maturity and it has nothing to do with God the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's not spiritual maturity, it's just ritual, it's morality, it's good works, it's churchianity, but it's not true biblical spirituality. Now, I want to stress that point because what the implication of this is that there is a counterfeit spirituality that is the product of the sin nature and we live in a world that wants to say that the sin nature just produces those things which are very evil and very wicked the overt sins of the flesh and sometimes people will actually admit that there are mental attitude sins that are pretty bad as well but usually we focus on those overt overt sins well what this is telling us is that the the flesh the sin nature can produce a counterfeit spiritual life and the question we must ask is How do we tell the difference? Now, I can't stress that simple little question enough because it seems today that people are confused over this whole issue of how you get from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood, and many solutions are nothing more than the solutions of the flesh. One view of how you advance is based on the Mosaic Law. It's a view of the Mosaic Law that, of course, does away with the sacrifices and does away with the rituals of the Mosaic Law and that those things which specifically pertain to Israel, but keeps the moral precepts of the law as being the mandate for the spiritual life. And under this concept of the Mosaic Law, this is typical in Reformed churches, Calvinistic churches, their, their thesis is, Anything that was not abrogated clearly in the New Testament is still in effect. Any specific mandate in the Mosaic Law that wasn't specifically abrogated or nullified by Jesus Christ or the apostles is still in effect. So that means that aside from your ritual uh, rit- ritual mandates, sacrificial mandates, uh, Mandate specifically related to the theocratic function of Israel, everything else is still in effect, including the Sabbath. They would change the Sabbath, though, from Saturday to Sunday because it's been, they would claim, their argument is that it's been invested with new meaning because on the first day of the week is when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and so now we celebrate the Sabbath on Sunday, and so you don't work on the Sabbath, and you don't shop on the Sabbath, and you don't watch TV on the Sabbath. And I know a very fine Old Testament scholar, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, who got in a discussion with a friend of mine and said, oh, no, I don't watch anything, watch television. How do you, the question was, how do you keep the Sabbath? I don't watch television on Sunday. You don't? No, no. Does your, and your wife does No, no, my wife watches football, but she's in the next room. <laughs> You get into some real funny applications. But the principle is, if it isn't abrogated, now you've got to listen to this. This is really important. If it's not abrogated, it's still in effect. Dispensational theology says this. If it's not stated in the New Testament, it's no longer in effect. Okay, you hear the difference? Reformed theology says if it's not abrogated by Jesus or the apostles, it's still in effect. Dispensational theology says it's no longer in effect unless it is specifically stated to be in effect by Jesus and the apostles. And there's a real difference between those two positions because the dispensational position says, therefore, that everything in the law ended, as Romans 10 says, Christ is the end of the law, that everything in the law ended although there is a certain continuity, there are certain similarities, or certain patterns that are in every dispensation, and that there are specific mandates and precepts that are reiterated by Jesus and the apostles. And I, I was amazed. The first time I pastored a church, I remember making the statement that the Ten Commandments had nothing to do for to, nothing to do with today. And I saw the look of shock and consternation on well over 75% of the congregation. And I came to realize that they had never been really taught anything dispensational, even though they had a dispensational doctrinal statement. And I had to back up, and these people thought that uh, were under the impression that all of the basic moral mandates, such as thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, honor your father and your mother, were all instantiated at the Ten Commandments. And I said, well, that doesn't make sense because the Ten Commandments weren't given until about 1444 B.C. What do you do from creation, which was probably somewhere between 4,000 and 4,500 B.C.? I don't believe there are any gaps in the genealogies in Genesis, and I think that the numbers in Genesis are to be taken literally, and so that uh, I believe in a very early creation, or at least... Uh, The fall happened no more than about 4,000 to 4,500 years before Christ. So you've got this period then of about 3,000 years. You're saying that without the Mosaic law, what did they do for law? Well, these things were still wrong, morally wrong. The Mosaic law was given specifically for Israel. So the law is given as one solution, moral obedience. Let's reduce it to that. Just put M-O here. Moral obedience, that is one suggestion for how you advance in the spiritual life. Another suggestion for advancing the spiritual life is one we looked at some Wednesday night in our study of James and our talk about religion, and that is the view of sacramentalism. This dominates in both Roman Catholic theology and in Episcopal theology, that what happens in sacramentalism is as you participate in the sacraments, this is a difference between a sacrament and an ordinance. A sacrament conveys grace. That's the difference. In sacramentalism, you have your, your seven sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church, and as you partake of those or participate in those sacraments, then you receive grace. So it is a, basically a works system. And there's all sorts of theological maneuverings to avoid making that real clear. And I had one Catholic make it clear to me one time and said, boy, you're earning a lot of grace. I never had anyone stated so apparently and so obviously before, but she understood the system. You're earning grace, and that's an oxymoron, totally contradictory, but sacramentalism says you do certain things, you participate in certain things, and as a result, you receive increments of grace, which produces spiritual growth, but you're never sure how much or where, and there's no certainty there. So you have one option is moral obedience, another option is sacramentalism, and another option is church, we'll call it church activity, C.A., church activity, getting involved in all the programs of church, going to church on a regular basis. How many times do you hear somebody say, well, so-and-so is having a lot of problems in their life. All they need to do is go to church. That somehow the very activity of participating in church and church activities and all the do-good things and programs associated with that, getting involved with missions programs, getting involved teaching Sunday school, not anything about learning doctrine. So if they're teaching Sunday school, how do they know what they're teaching? It's sort of on-the-job training so to speak, and they really don't know what they're talking about. So you have church activity, and these are the various options. And then you have the option that somehow spiritual growth is just based upon faith, that I just have to believe that as long as I am applying the mandates of Scripture, that the Holy Spirit is nourishing me and advancing me spiritually. Well, faith in what? That's my question. What What is the object of that particular kind of faith? Is that just sort of a faith in the Holy Spirit as it's been expressed to me? And I sort of scratch my head and say, well, where in the Scriptures does it say that I am to place my faith in the Holy Spirit at any point in time? So that's the option. Those are basically the where where you end up no matter what model of the spiritual life you look at. It's going to be one of those given as an answer. Well, Paul tells us in, in these chapters in Galatians that by raising the question, having begun by means of the Spirit, you're now being perfected by the flesh, that there is something unique about the uh, believer's relationship with God in this era that goes beyond anything else in human history. And this is further emphasized in Galatians 3.13 and 14, which I think is a crux passage, "...for understanding all of Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the laws at the beginning of the sentence in verse 13." And then verse 14, "...in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith." So the emphasis comes back to the fact that whatever's going on in the Christian life, that this, this move from infancy to spiritual adulthood is going to be uniquely empowered by the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So the question is, how do you know whether you're functioning in the power of God the Holy Spirit or the flesh? These are mutually contradictory. So through these chapters, Paul is emphasizing all that we have as believers, and that this is not just an issue related to where we're going to spend eternity in heaven, but is related to our very inheritance as sons of God. And he has, and as have we, as we have studied in the last several weeks, the whole doctrines of adoption and inheritance. We have focused on the, this analogy from the Roman world of adoption, which demonstrates the temporary nature of the Mosaic Law. And that proves that, look, the Mosaic Law and all work systems are not relevant at all to the spiritual life. This is so important because the issue is this. If, let's number these, moral the moral option, number one, sacramentalism, number two, church activity, number three, and faith, number four. Let's say those are our options. Well, these are mutually exclusive. There's also a fifth option, which is through the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is recovered through the use of 1 John 1, nine, which is a position that we hold here at Preston City Bible Church. So, you've got these five different options. Well, they're mutually exclusive. If one is right, then two, three, four, and five are wrong, and you're never going to get beyond spiritual infancy. Period, and that's devastating. You will never truly learn, or learn to solve problems, the way God has, uh, in the way God has provided for us. You'll never learn to tap into uh, divine assets or spiritual assets, and you will be a failure in the spiritual life. Now, if one is is wrong, and two is right, then the same thing adheres. And the same thing for options three, four, and so on. That if these are mutually exclusive, that's why this is important. It doesn't just have to do with the spiritual life, or our eternity in heaven, because if the lordship crowd, let's go down back to our original analogy, you've got faith alone in Christ alone, which is the true grace option, and then you have lordship salvation, which is an option that, that sort of backloads the gospel with works. or or any other front-loaded work system, faith plus baptism, faith plus church attendance, faith plus good works, whatever it is. It's it's, it's subtle, but the issues are that if this is right, then you won't get to heaven this way, period, over and out. There is no eternal life. You will burn forever in the lake of fire, and that's it. This is the eternity of souls and and their destiny that is of such, such significance. Now, the same thing is true up here. If we're right, all these other people are wrong and they're never going to get out of the cradle. Never, never, never. All they're doing is amassing enormous amounts of dead works and human good and it won't get anywhere. Their prayers don't get anywhere. They are engaged in nothing more than pure human good, sin nature motivated acts every Sunday from 10 a.m. to 12 a.m. and it's not getting them anywhere and it makes God nauseous according to Revelation chapter 3. That's why this is so important and that's why Paul has just been blasting the Galatians for the last three chapters. He has just been reaming them out because this is vital. This is crucial. And then what happens in verse 12 of chapter 4? There is a major tone shift. Now, the way it's written in the English is Terms of word order is not the way it's presented in the Greek. So I'm going to translate it from the Greek. It begins with a command, a mandate. Become as I, because I as you. Now, if you'll notice, that sounds a little stilted in English. And if you look down in your, in your English translation in, in the New American Standard, you'll notice that there are various words in that English translation that are italicized. Now, what that means is that those words are put into the English for the ease of reading and to get some sort of context and word flow, but they are not found in the original Greek. And this is what's called ellipsis. Ellipsis is what takes place when when you're thinking so quickly and you're so excited that you start leaving words out and dropping words out. And it indicates excitement, it indicates significance, that you're very emotional at this point, very excited. And that's what's going on with Paul. He says, be as I am, become as I am. It's the uh, passive uh, imperative of genemi. Become as I am, be just like me now. See, Paul was a Pharisee. Now he is a grace-oriented believer. The Galatians started off as grace-oriented believers and then they reverted because of the influence of these Jewish teachers that were following Paul around. And as soon as Paul would hit town and teach the gospel and a bunch of uh, Jews and Gentiles would be saved, then when he left town, these Jewish teachers would come in behind him and say, now you really want to get the rest of the story. And the rest of the story is that you have, to have, you have to be circumcised and you have to follow the Mosaic law if you're really going to get to heaven. Faith in Jesus is great, but it's just a starting point. If you really want to get there, you have to change your life and you have to pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps through your own morality to get to, get to heaven. So they had reverted. They started off as grace-oriented believers and they had reverted to a system of legalism That was much like Pharisaism. So Paul is saying, they're here now as legalists, as Paul was when he began. He says, become as I am. He wants them to come back from legalism to a position of being grace-oriented and understanding grace. He says, become as I am. That's the emphasis of this verse. Change. Become as I am because, and in the Greek it reads, because... Or for, I also as you. And he leaves the verb out, his ellipsis. He says, become as I am because, look, I once was where you are. So he's beginning now, he's argued from doctrine. He's argued from the nature of the gospel. He has argued from the Old Testament example of of, uh, the Abrahamic covenant. He has presented his argument on the basis of the analogy of adoption from the Roman world, and now he's arguing from his personal experience. Now, it's, never, it's not inherently wrong to refer to your personal experience. A lot of people think that because we're down on it. Now, it's wrong if you're, personal, if you're interpreting your personal experience from a human viewpoint framework, and that's what happens so often is people just think their experience rules. But all experience has to be evaluated and judged on the basis of the Word of God. And if you're correctly interpreting your your experience, then it's okay to use that as, as part of the argument. For example, you can tell people your personal testimony of how you trusted Christ as your Savior and how you realized that whatever system you were following before you were saved was completely wrong and, and false and wasn't getting you anywhere, and how you were miserable and unhappy and because you kept... Doing drugs, or you were an alcoholic, or you were caught up in religiosity, or whatever it was, you were absolutely miserable, and then you trusted Christ, and you, well, you still had a hangover, and you still had problems with that drug overdose, but, but you were getting over it, and as you learned doctrine, you finally got past that, and now you have tranquility and stability and contentment in your life, which you didn't have before. That's, see, that's using experience in the correct way. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here, is he's showing that, look, I learned when I was a Pharisee, that it doesn't get you anywhere. That legalism is false. It, it is a method of enslavement. And you need to get away from it and get back to where I am. And he's, but he's, his tone has shifted to a gentle tone. He says, become as I am because I also was like you. And now we see that, that there's a level of compassion that is entering into his appeal after three and a half chapters Paul is shifting his tone. He says for only the second time in this epistle, the last time was in 111, he calls them brethren. He's been like a machine gun, just pounding them with one doctrinal thing after another because doctrine rules over experience, and he's nailing them on the basis of all the doctrines that they have been taught and that they should know. But now he backs off a little bit. And he shows how important this is. He he says, "I I beg of you," and this is the Greek word deomai, d e o m a i, and this is a present active indicative. It is a even though it has a passive ending, it is uh, has an active meaning. He says, "I beg of you, I entreat you, I plead with you, I implore you." Okay, he is saying, look, this is serious. What we're talking about is not just some minor difference in, in language. This isn't just semantics. This isn't just a different opinion and how people ought to worship God. This is vital because this is going to make all the difference in the world in your spiritual life. You have got to break out of your time-bound views of life and realize that everything you do on this earth lasts just about 70 years, and then you have an eternity which goes on and on and on forever. And frankly, if you were to take a a piece of string and stretch it from here to Boston, your life on earth is, is like the first atom on that string compared to eternity. And yet what we must realize in the spiritual life is what we're doing with what God gives us during that that first atom of time. Those 60 or 70 years we have on earth is going to determine the rest of that, everything else that happens on that string, The quality of life that we have in heaven, our position, our responsibilities, our, our contingent blessings for eternity are all determined by how we handle life in these 60, 70, 80 years that God gives us right now. And so Paul is imploring them to wake up, to, to pay attention to these issues. And he reminds them of how they were when he first came to them. He concludes the verse 12 by saying, You have done me no wrong. In other words, I'm not going to make this a personal insult. This is the, something that is important, and you see in maturing believers, that they do not make rejection of the gospel or rejection of doctrine a personal issue. Now that's hard to learn that lesson because when you first are a young believer, you're excited, you found the truth, and you want other people to see the truth, and you tell them, you know, "You're foolish. You believe that? That's silly. You know how can you do that? You just put your brains in park and put your brains in neutral, and you're just jumping on the religious bandwagon." Like Mark said, now you're just sort of a, a, a emotional cripple walking around on the crutch of religion. What's wrong with you? And now you feel what? You feel insulted. Well, that's because as as young believers, we haven't grown enough yet to have our confidence in the Word of God and not to pay attention to how people respond to us. The issue is not personal rejection. The issue is always rejection of doctrine. And so we are not to take it personally. In fact, that's arrogance. But young believers can't handle rejection very well because they haven't matured enough to realize that they aren't the one being rejected. It's the gospel that's being rejected. It's Jesus Christ that's being rejected. And you're just the messenger that's being shot in the process. You're not the issue, though. We need to remove ourselves completely from the situation. We are not the issue. That is arrogance. As soon as we start running around saying, oh, my feelings are hurt and I'm upset and they've rejected me, we have made our own Feelings, our own emotions, the issue rather than the grace of God. And we need to remember that the attack is always on the veracity of the word of God and that we're in the middle of spiritual warfare and there's always going to be hostility because we're in the devil's world. But the issue is grace and we, are, we who stand up for grace are always going to be shot at and the only way we can learn to handle that adversity and that opposition is through the ten stress busters and the problem-solving devices that God has given us. And this is all part of learning humility, which is part of grace orientation. So Paul says, even though you've rejected the doctrine, and in fact they were attacking Paul, he says, you have done me no wrong. He is not going to make it a personal issue. He is showing tremendous humility and grace orientation. Verse 13, But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I proclaimed the gospel to you. I like the word proclaim. Here we have, um, in the Greek, we have the, the verb is... which means to proclaim good news. And I like the, the concept of proclamation as opposed to preaching, because preaching is another one of those religious terms that has such baggage to it. He's come to town and he has been explaining the gospel, presenting the gospel, and witnessing to people both publicly and privately. And he says, you know that it was because of a bodily illness. So apparently when the Apostle Paul first came to Galatia, to southern Galatia, to Derby Lystra, Iconium, he was... And there was some sort of physical malady. Now, there's a lot of debate as to just what this physical malady was. Some have said it relates to the eye trouble that Paul mentions later on in this in this epistle and that there are various uh, non-canonical uh, records of what Paul, Paul looked like and he was nearsighted and various other things. But these descriptions of the Apostle Paul all date from a couple of hundred years later, so we can't really rely on them. Others suggest that he had picked up malaria along the way and was having a malarial relapse. Others have suggested any number of different diseases and and, uh, physical problems that Paul had. But I think that what we need to do is just focus on the basic word here. He says, through weakness. Through weakness of the flesh. And the word that's translated weakness is the Greek word austhenes, which is an important word for the day today because we are going to come back and look at its verbal form in the second hour when we get into uh, the Gospel of John, and we're spending a lot of time today. It's interesting how sometimes all of a sudden everything comes together on Sunday morning and both hours complement one another. Austhenes, A-S-T-H-E-N-E. E-S is a w- compound word the alpha privative that is this initial a is a negative it's like our word our prefix un it's make, which makes the word negative negative. and sthenes has to do with strength so it literally means without strength or weak now what realm of weakness are we talking about in the gospels it primarily refers to a physical weakness Sickness, And there is healing that takes place. However, there are even exceptions to that rule of usage in the Gospels. Jesus said, the flesh is willing, I mean the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. On well, that passage, he's not talking about sickness. He's talking about uh, emotional or spiritual inability or weakness. But in most passages, it's talking, as we'll see, in John chapter 4, at the end of John 4, and also in John 5, it refers to a physical uh, illness. So it can refer to a physical or a spiritual weakness. In this passage, because it is modified by the the attributive genitive, or the adjectival genitive of the flesh, we know that Paul is talking about a physical problem that he had, a physical disease. Now, this same word is used also over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's turn there, really in chapter 12, but I want to pick up the context in 2 Corinthians 11 because this gives us important information as background. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 30 Paul says, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. And here is our word, ostinates. I will boast in relation to my own weakness. The God and the Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. And then he relates an event that took place earlier in his life. says, in Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. Boasting is necessary though it is not profitable. Remember there's no chapter break in the original. Boasting is necessary though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago. So he's, this, this, what he is relating here is, goes back to the ep- when he was almost stoned to death and he barely escaped with his life. And it seems that it's very likely that Paul perhaps was killed in that stoning and the Lord brought him back to life. Or if he wasn't killed, he was very close to it and there was a miraculous uh, restoration of physical strength afterwards. And this occurred 14 years ago. Well, we know that 2 Corinthians was written about 56 A.D. So 14 years before would have been... I'm going to... I've got this up your backwards timeline, would have been about 42. Well, Galatians isn't written until approximately 48. So, the episode that Paul is talking about took place in that period of time before he uh, initially went to Galatia. So, this would have consequences for his later ministry. It says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. There are three heavens. The way the Scripture describes things, the first heaven is the atmosphere surrounding the earth. The second heaven is the universe, the domain of the stars. The third is the throne room, of God. So here he says, I was caught up to the third heaven, which is the throne room of God. Verse 3, And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. In other words, he was unconscious. He's having a vision that God gives him. And and he's not sure all of the dynamics, but he knows that his consciousness was in heaven. He was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words. Now, paradise prior to the cross was located in Abraham's bosom, but after the the cross, when Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, he took paradise with him. After he died on the cross, his body went in the grave, his human uh, soul, uh, spirit went to heaven, his soul went and proclaimed victory to the prisoners in Tartarus, and then he took those in paradise to heaven. He was caught up into paradise, which is now located in heaven, and heard inexpressible words. Paul was given divine revelation, which a man is not permitted to speak. So he was given a certain certain amount of revelation, but a lot of this he was not going to be allowed to communicate. Verse 5, On behalf of such a man will I boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. So he's learning something about arrogance and humility and personal human fleshly weaknesses. Now, let's get down to verse 7. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, in other words, to keep me from becoming arrogant over all this superlative information that God has given me, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, and this is described then as a messenger, and the word translated messenger is the Greek word angelos, meaning angel. That's the root meaning of angelos, or angel, is messenger. But here it is, an angelos from Satan, and I take it that this is talking about a demon, that Paul specifically came under opposition that was energized by a demon, whether this was, and I believe that this was not just manifested in some spiritual realm, but that there was a particular demon assigned to. Uh, attack Paul and to stir up controversy and opposition to Paul because when we get a little further down into the passage in verse 10 it says therefore I am well content with weaknesses with insults, distresses, persecutions with difficulties. All of this is the stirred up opposition that was generated through antagonism from the uh, demonic realm in terms of spiritual warfare and the angelic conflict. So there's given me a thorn in the flesh and angelos or a demon, a th- demon from Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. So he's constantly going to have these problems in order to keep from becoming arrogant. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times. So he prays about it three times, which is valid because when we pray, we don't know what God's going to say. But when God says no, after two or three times, we need to quit quit trying to get God to change his mind, accept it, and move on. And here's the principle he learned, verse 9. God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. Now, that word sufficient is a powerful word. That word sufficient means everything you will ever need. You don't need anything more. It is completely adequate. You don't need anything else. You don't need psychology. You don't need counseling. You don't need to go through psychotherapy. And you don't need to blame your parents and go through all this other uh, histrionics and background. What you need to do is learn grace orientation, learn the faith rest drill, learn some doctrine and apply, and and rely upon that. My grace is sufficient for you for power is matured through weakness. Most gladly then that's the quote from God, then we return to Paul's comment, most gladly therefore I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And what we learn from this what Paul learns from this and the doctrine he's communicating to us is that the divine solution is the only solution and that the human solution is no solution. So it is very likely that throughout Paul's life that maybe as a manifestation of this, this demon he had health problems. He certainly had health problems when he came to Galatia and Preview of coming attractions in the next hour, he wasn't healed. He did not heal himself. It was not God's will for him to be healed. His sickness was not a result of his sin. Now it can be, but it wasn't for the Apostle Paul. It, he was not relieved in any way of this, and yet it was through that weakness that he had, his health problems, that the power of God was made manifest. And the power of God was not made manifest in this silly, superficial way that comes across today with all the faith healers by healing Paul in some dramatic way in front of everybody. What happens is that Paul has these health problems and in the midst of a number of other adversities, and he sticks with doctrine, he sticks with the Word of God, he continues to function as God wants him to function, He continues to apply doctrine and to advance in the spiritual life. He doesn't cry about it. He doesn't whine about it. He doesn't try to find some kind of of quick and easy solution by going to some faith healer to get rid of this. He just goes forward in his job of proclaiming the gospel. Verse 14, And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe. There was nothing in Paul, all of his health problems, whatever other problems he did, removed any emphasis on Paul in terms of his personality or his presence and put the emphasis on content. This is something we've lost in our society today with the glitz of television. We put, a lot of, we put more emphasis on the package and the packaging than on what's inside the package. So the people would rather go to a church where there are a lot of people, where there's a lot of activity, where there's a lot of music, and all the packaging is there, and people look good, and they're engaged in all this activity, but there's no content because we're not a content-oriented people anymore because we can't think. Our education system has failed us. So Paul says, "...that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition you did not despise or loathe." In other words, because of positive volition, they looked past the external circumstances and they received Paul with joy and enthusiasm and his message, which was a grace gospel. Now, in all of this, the point that Paul is making is to entreat them and implore them to come back to grace. And so he is reminding them of the original situation when he first came to them. He said, where then is that sense of blessing you had? In other words, are, do you have this sense of contentment and tranquility And peace that you had, not anymore. You're too busy trying to work your way to heaven. You're too busy trying to please Jesus now. You're too busy going out and doing for God. And you've lost that sense of of peace and stability and tranquility. He says, "...for I bear you witness that if possible you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Now you're hostile to me, but you were so excited about the message of grace." You had been so mired in your religion, in the works, in mysticism, and everything that involved that when you heard the message of the grace of God, you were so excited about it that you would have indeed plucked out your very eyes and given them to me. And then he says, have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? You know, the sad thing is we live in an age today when people are so hypersensitive and so arrogant that when you tell people the truth, they become your enemy. They can't stand it. And we've all experienced that with family members, with friends. We sit down and we explain the gospel. We, we tell them the truth about something. They may ask us. We're being objective. Now, I heard something on the radio this last week, and I thought it was rather good, just a principle of truth, that too often we think that because Ephesians says we're supposed to speak the truth, that we ought to always tell people the absolute truth about everything. But that's not what that passage is saying. That passage is saying that we're supposed to speak the truth in love. That means there are a lot of things you just don't tell the truth about. That doesn't mean you lie about it. But you don't tell people, oh my, don't you look ugly today? Aren't you fat? Your clothes are really getting too tight for you. We have to exercise some care and concern, and, and we have to speak the truth in love and in kindness and gentleness. We have to uh, uh, do that. But we also, we have to have that level of objectivity and we can't get involved in a lot of hypersensitivity. But very few people can handle it when we tell them the truth. And that's what Paul is saying here. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? And then he exposes the false teachers. They're using flattery. Flattery is the enemy of grace. They, that is, the Judaizers, they eagerly seek you, not commendably, literally not in a good way. The Greek uses the ad, ad, adjective, or adverb, kalos, not in a good way. They eagerly seek you, not in a good way, but they wish to shut you out in order that you may seek them. In other words, what they want to shut them out from Paul. So they want to cut off Paul so that the Galatians will be totally caught up with the legalism of the Judaizers and excluded from Paul. They want them to be completely alienated from anyone who's going to teach them anything about grace. And so what they're going to do in order to get the Galatians' attention is they're going to flatter them. Rather than tell them the truth, as Paul is telling them the truth, They'll tell them whatever they want to hear in order to make sure that they are accepted. And that's the continuing thought of verse 18. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. What's the commendable manner? By telling the truth. Objectivity. Telling the truth in a kind way. It's always good to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. And then he concludes, My children, with whom I am again "...in labor until Christ is formed in you." You see, this is the thrust of Paul's message. The goal of of Christianity, the goal of evangelism, is not simply to move people from a position of eternal death to a position of eternal life. That's great. That's wonderful. And as long as we can get people to, to trust Christ as their Savior, where they're going to spend eternity in heaven... That's wonderful. I'm not knocking that. But that's that's the beginning. There's advance in the spiritual life, and that's what Paul is talking here, because real growth and maturity in the Christian life, to have everything that God has for us, to have all of those blessings activated in time that God has for us, means that we have to advance to spiritual maturity. And that is character-oriented. That's the thrust of this passage. I am in labor until Christ is formed in you. What does it mean until Christ is formed in you? That is an allusion to what Paul will clarify in the next chapter when he talks about the production of the Holy Spirit. Now we leap ahead. Let's wrap this up. I talked about the fact at the beginning that the issue is advanced from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood. And Spiritual adulthood... We manifest the character of Jesus Christ. This is also known as the fruit of the Spirit. How do you get from point A to point B? You get there through two power options in the spiritual life. One is the Word of God, Bible doctrine. For the Word of God is alive and powerful. That is our source of power in the spiritual life. But it is also done under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. For it is a unique spiritual life. When you come to Galatians chapter 5, there is a distinct contrast. This is carried on from back at the beginning of chapter 3 between the deeds of the flesh, that is the sin nature in verse 19, and the production of the Holy Spirit in verse 22. So there is, it's either one or the other. You are either under the power of the sin nature. Or you're under the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit's making decisions for you. Your volition is still the issue. The sin nature is going to tempt you, but your volition decides to acquiesce to that temptation or not. When you are filled with the Holy Spirit, then we, with the use of doctrine, these work together, they do not work separately can maintain that position of being positive through the application of doctrine. And then we stay positive and we continue to advance and grow through application of doctrine. This is the thrust in James, to be not just a hearer of the word, but an effectual doer. That means as you learn doctrine, you assimilate it into your soul. That doctrine goes from being taught from the pastor, the Holy Spirit, makes it under, makes pneumaticos doctrine, spiritual doctrine, understandable. You exercise positive volition. It goes into the mentality of the soul where you meditate on it as gnosis, academic truth. You exercise positive volition and believe it, and the Holy Spirit transfers it, and moves it into your heart, your cardia, where you set up various norms and standards and various values which erect a doctrinal mirror which is the standard of objectivity inside the soul so that you can evaluate your life your life situations your problems whatever they are and then you have a, as, you, as you go through the process of learning doctrine and storing it in your soul you build up a reservoir of doctrine to draw upon to apply in every single situation of life that is the spiritual dynamic but what energizes it is the filling of the Holy Spirit because we're dealing with spiritual truth and not just natural truth. And it's not a product of the sin nature. It's not a product of the flesh. And the result is what Paul emphasizes in verse 19. Christ formed in you. The end result is that we mirror the character of Christ, that Christ forms in us his character, which is outlined in Galatians 5 "...as the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law." So in verse 19, Paul is making a transitional shift, a shift away from the argument he has been making, and he is begging and imploring them to return to doctrine because only on the basis of grace can they advance spiritually grow to adulthood, and and avoid the slavery of legalism, which becomes the thrust of the analogy that he goes to starting in verse 21. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the clarity of Scripture that we have. The, the grace that we have and that we understand that all that we have is due to all that you have done and is not done on the basis of who we are or what we have done. You have provided everything for us through the cross. That Jesus Christ paid it all. And the issue no longer is sin. The issue is uh, for salvation. What do you think about Jesus Christ? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou, will be, thou shalt be saved. And point number two, as believers, advancing in the spiritual life Independence upon the power you've provided, the power, the provisions, the assets you've provided, especially through the Word of God and the Holy Spirit who energizes us. Father, we pray that as we continue to advance that we might be aware of the legalism that seeks to uh, infiltrate our lives and that we might become more and more uh, grace-oriented as we advance, that we might have the character of Christ formed in us and not lose sight of the goal which is to be transformed from day to day, grace upon grace, into the image of Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.